If it was just about controlling blood pressure, preventing people from smoking, keeping their blood sugar under control, preventing from being obese, we would have already stopped cardiovascular disease from being the number one killer. There's nearly 400 risk factors that can go into damaging the cardiovascular system. And if you only look for four or five of them, you often miss the other more important ones. Welcome to the show where we help you make smart nutrition simple. If you want proven nutrition strategies to help you build a better body and create the energy to show up for your family without overly restrictive and unrealistic dieting, then you're in the right place. Make sure to subscribe and enjoy this episode. As the saying goes, a man is as old as his arteries. In today's episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show, I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Michael Twyman. Dr. Twyman is a heart attack prevention expert and board-certified cardiologist who utilizes the best of conventional medicine, integrative medicine, quantum medicine, and biohacking to get to the root cause of cardiovascular issues. In today's conversation, we dive deep into Dr. Twyman's progressive and proactive approach to cardiovascular health. We talk about what traditional blood tests used to assess heart health often miss. Uh, We talk about debunking the myths around cholesterol and introducing critical markers like ApoB and ApoE. We talk about the importance of optimizing mitochondrial function, why external appearances can be deceiving when assessing heart health, why prioritizing sleep is the most important thing that you can do for your heart, and reveal practical tips to optimize your sleep environment, including ways to reduce EMF exposure. We also explore heart rate variability, HRV, the limitations of smartwatches in measuring HRV and what your heart rate reveals about your health and longevity. We talk about the cardiovascular implications of different diets, from carnivore to plant-based, and the significance of seasonal eating. And finally, Dr. Twyman shares when it's appropriate to consult a cardiologist as well as the diagnostic and the genetic tests that can give you the deepest understanding of your heart health. In a world where cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death, this episode serves as a crucial wake-up call that we need to take a proactive approach to our vascular health. And it is my hope that you leave this podcast equipped with the necessary tools and insights to take your cardiovascular health into your own hands. So, Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Twyman. Dr. Twyman, welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show. How are you doing, sir? Doing well. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's fantastic to have you here. Uh, I'm, I was introduced to you at Ali Gilbert's Silverback Summit, and I was really blown away with your approach to cardiovascular health, and I thought there'd be nothing better than, one, to have the opportunity to interview you in person. Uh, and you know, pick your brain and kind of do coffee talk, if you will, as well as share your expertise and your more progressive and proactive approach to cardiovascular health with our audience. So again, thank you so much for being here. For sure. So uh, just to to kind of lay the foundation here for everyone, you know, we, we we say we use the term cardiovascular health. What does that really mean for people? Why should people be concerned or care about cardiovascular health? Cardiovascular disease is still the number one cause of death uh, by far, you know, way more than cancer, more than infectious disease, more than trauma. And so the number one cause of disease should really be the eighth or ninth. It should be a preventable disease for most people. 
Now, cardiovascular disease encompasses everything that you know involves the blood vessels, the heart. But most people, when they talk about cardiovascular disease, they're talking about coronary artery disease or plaque in the heart arteries. We're talking about things like heart attack, stroke, heart failure. Um, you know, there's you know peripheral arterial disease for guys, erectile dysfunction. So you know, it's all connected. That sixty thousand miles of blood vessels. If there's a organ that's failing, that's sometimes the alarm bell that you better go looking at the rest of the cardiovascular system. Yeah, hundred percent. And so. I think for a lot of people, you know, if we, if we do go to the doctor and we get regular blood work done, maybe once a year, maybe once every six months, I'd say probably most people, maybe once a year, if that, and we get a quote unquote clean bill of health or our cholesterol levels are, are normal, right? Our, our lipids are normal or, or within range for a lot of us you were, were given that clean bill of health. Is that good enough when it comes to uh, preventing cardiovascular disease? The, the unfortunate answer is that it is not enough because if it was just about controlling blood pressure, preventing people from smoking, keeping their blood sugar under control, preventing from being obese, um, we would have already stopped cardiovascular disease from being the number one killer. You know, there's nearly 400 risk factors that can go into damaging the cardiovascular system. And if you only look for four or five of them, you often miss the other more important ones. Um, and the things that you're imaging, like cholesterol, it's a very complicated topic. I'm sure we're going to dive into a little bit. But if you just look at a traditional cholesterol panel, you may not have any concept if that, you know, quote, high cholesterol is actually damaging arteries or not. You have to actually go looking at the arteries themselves. And so instead of focusing on just a, you know, blood marker is a you know predictor of risk you know it's better to look at the actual arteries themselves non-invasively of course you know most people generally actually don't see doctors unless they're having symptoms and cardiovascular disease is often asymptomatic for many years you know it can start in your teens and 20s and you're not going to show up to a doctor with right. exercise intolerance or chest pain into your you know 50s right. 60s so you have a long period to intervene yeah. So, so you mentioned a few of the lab markers that we typically would look at, you know, when I think about it, it's like, okay, well, we look at cholesterol and we look at, you know, the types of cholesterol. Um, what else we look at, uh, in terms of the, the general labs. So, so what would be the things that people are familiar with that are typically run in a standard lab panel and what else should we be looking at? That's perhaps easily enough accessible um, to help give us a better idea about our risk. So if you go to a doctor and your only risk evaluation is you have a quote, normal EKG, quote, normal blood pressure and normal LDL cholesterol, you still have no idea if you're at risk of a heart attack or stroke. You have to look at the arteries themselves. Now, blood work will give you some idea if who's more likely to develop plaque in their arteries. And there are companies that are, you know, direct to consumer, you know, you can also go to quest and get some of these advanced cardiovascular testing and often insurance will cover most of them, or they're generally not that expensive. If you kind of fine tune to just, you know, the advanced lipoproteins and the inflammatory markers, but think about vascular health in three big buckets. One is how healthy is the nitric oxide pathways Two, how much inflammation and oxidative stress is in the system. And three, the lipoproteins. 
It's lipoproteins, which actually ferry the cholesterol through the arteries. The cholesterol is not the problem. It's the lipoproteins carrying the cholesterol potentially are the problem. And so there's different tests that you can check for each of those three buckets and basically start pulling on the handles of the ones that are in the red zone. You lower those you know, pathways to the optimal levels, the person less likely goes on to be developing a lot of plaque in their arteries. So, so just to clarify, when we are getting blood work run and we're looking at total cholesterol and we're looking at the ratios of, of HDL and LDL, and I think, um, you know, sometimes they're looking at perhaps particle size or the amount of, of small dense or large fluffy particles, right? Are, are those relevant? Because what I'm hearing from you is the, the cholesterol in and of itself is not the problem, right? The, bo the body's producing cholesterol for a reason. It's the transporters, the lipoproteins that we really need to be taking a look at. And so what, where should people be looking here? Like what should they specifically be asking for if there was maybe two or three additional tests that we would add on to a, a blood panel? And is that even good enough? So the... Lipoprotein analysis, you know, if you're only going to look at one number, look at apolipoprotein B or ApoB. Yeah. ApoB is on the outside of all the lipoproteins that could contribute to plaque forming in the arteries. So the cholesterol, because it's waxy, can't float in your liquid blood. So your liver makes something called a lipoprotein. It's a lipid protein carrier. And for those that are watching the video, I'll explain it, but uh, it's like a tennis ball. Your liver is making these round spherical lipoproteins. The cholesterol, which is waxy, goes inside. The triglycerides, which are energy for the cells, the vitamins and phospholipids, which are building blocks for cells, all go inside these lipoproteins. So the tennis ball is the lipoprotein. There's a white stripe on a tennis ball. That white stripe is analogous to apolipoprotein B, or ApoB for short. It's a structural protein, so it helps keep this thing in a sphere. And it also acts as what's known as a ligand. So it's like a key that fits right. into different receptors. ApoB is on the outside of your LDL particles, your VLDL particles, your ILDL particles, and if present, LPLA particles. The lion's share of ApoB is going to be on the LDL particles. But in 20% of the population, people have lipoprotein little a, which if you have that lipoprotein, that doubles the risk of vascular disease. And it's asymptomatic. You cannot feel that you have high levels of LPLA. But it's often present in people who have a family history of heart attacks and strokes in their 40s, 50s, or if you've already done vascular testing and you have a positive calcium score test at an earlier age, it's often common that you have high levels of LPLA because it's more atherogenic. It tends to basically stick to the arteries more and contribute to more plaque formation. But back to the blood test itself, ApoB encompasses all the particles that could stick to your arteries. The 20th percentile is an ApoB of 70, 70. So if your ApoB is greater than 70, then you need to kind of know what's going on with your arteries. If you're developing plaque in your arteries, you would like to see your ApoB levels less than 70. If you already had a heart attack or stents or bypass surgery, often your ApoB target is the fifth percentile, where 95% of people have values higher than that. An ApoB of 55 is the fifth percentile. So that is the test that you'd want to look at. Cholesterol, for the most part, does not matter. Now, if your total cholesterol is over 300 milligrams per deciliter, you may have a genetic reason why your cholesterol is high. You can do some testing to confirm that. But it's really about the particles. The particles predict the risk.
Okay. And, and I recall, you know, um, years back, there was a lot of conversation around the particle size, right? The small dense and large fluffy. Is that still relevant as we look to cardiovascular risk? Not nearly as much. It's the, the size is much secondary to the total number of particles. Okay. So often if people have small dense LDLs, it's either due to insulin resistance, which you'll somewhat be able to figure out by their insulin, their glucose, their yeah. A1C, their triglycerides, their low HDL, their just body composition. You'll have an idea that they're likely insulin resistant. And then there's often some genetic reasons people make small LDLs. The smaller LDLs tend to have a longer residence time. They stick around longer before they get cleared from the blood vessels. So there's a little bit more chance that they may oxidize, but it's still an ApoB particle. And if you have small ApoB particles, you just tend to have a lot of them. Absolutely. Um, I want to come back to some of the more advanced testing stuff and ways that people can do their diligence to, to kind of figure out where they're at. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of fundamental principles that we want to talk about in terms of nutrition and exercise and, and lifestyle that are precursors to all of this. And that's part of why I'm happy to have this conversation with you, because clearly, you know, you're, you're taking more of a proactive approach to this. I'm curious, and for our listeners, what prompted you to go from, you know, maybe the more traditional cardiovascular surgeon route, uh, more invasive route to uh, where you are now? No, that's a, that's a very good uh, point is, yeah, my practice is now really designed to be proactive and not reactive. Yeah. I was an invasive cardiologist for many years and treated many heart attacks and would be in the cath lab you know, in the middle of the night, fixing people up. And it was always worthwhile. But I also had that in the back of my mind. It's like, man, we barely saved this person. Like, mm. it seemed like maybe we could get to these people a little bit earlier than in the middle of the night when their plaques are rupturing. And it was the patients that kept coming back who were already on aspirin, statins, blood pressure medicines. They kept coming back. I was like, we must be missing something. And the something that got missed was the health of the endothelium, the inflammation. You have to kind of put the fires out. Otherwise, they're going to keep developing more and more plaques in the arteries. And then it's like a game of whack-a-mole. You know, they make it a stent in one artery, but if you don't fix the root mm. causes, they're just going to come on right back. And you just hope that you have time to save them. Half the time people have heart attacks, they never make it to the hospital. So you're just trying to prevent it. So I became much more of a proactive cardiologist. I'm not waiting for people to have symptoms. The majority of my patients come to me, they have no symptoms. They're not having chest pain or shows about. They're just, my dad had a heart attack at 55 and I don't want to go down that pathway. What testing should I get? And then we kind of walk them through that pathway and tell them how well their arteries are aging. Yeah, most definitely. And I can see the, you know, the incentive for people like I'm 44, I can see the, you know, the incentive for people like in my mind, you know, I'm starting to think much more about longevity. I'm thinking about my role as a father and as a husband and right playing that game. And you mentioned how cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and how it starts to impact us even in our teens. So sort of what's the, it, you know, what's the communication like to, what would you say to a younger population that doesn't have those overt concerns about longevity, <laughs> right? Um, they're, they're, they're fearless and, you know, mm -hmm. nothing's going to affect them. What does the conversation look like for them around their nutrition and lifestyle and exercise behaviors as it starts to impact their later years? Yeah, that's always sort of the the the, the real challenge is that, you know, 
real preventive cardiology would start in your like childhood and teenage years, building the healthy habits that last a lifetime. You know, it's never too late, but by the time you have multivessel coronary disease, you have to start using more pharmaceutical agents and you're, you know, starting to throw the kitchen sink at people to put out the five alarm fires. But it's going to come down to the four habits and they're, you know, things that people have heard before. You know, they're going to talk about nutrition exercise. They're important. But I will tell you, they're not as important as sleeping well mm -hmm. and managing your stress. And those are two things that people often don't really think about how to modulate until they're like, hey, I'm not sleeping at all. I feel horrible. You have to learn how to sleep well. And there's going to be some circadian biology things we may talk about. And there's some different circadian rhythms in teenagers versus people in their 30s and 40s and later. So they may not sleep the exact same, but prioritizing sleep, as soon as you figure it out, is the superpower. You know, mm -hmm. Your brain will work so much better. Your metabolism will work so much better. It's definitely promoted with you know, less neurodegeneration. So figuring out how to sleep better is key. Nutrition, you are a little bit more of a hybrid when you're in your teens and 20s. You can get away with a lot more stuff in that age group than when you're 40, 50, and your metabolism right. starts to totally. slow down. Um, and then, you know, we met at, you know, the Silverback Summit, you know, there's a lot of jack guys there. So like resistance training is really key. The sooner you realize that like muscle health is really an organ of longevity, that's a term here, my friend, Dr. Lyon, you sure. know, exposes, you know, the better you tend to age. So it's those four buckets. It's nutrition, exercise, it's stress management. And it doesn't mean that, you know, you're not going to have stress in your life, but it's like, how do you dial back from that stress? Is it a walk? Is it meditation? Is it yoga? Is it biofeedback? Whatever you like to do. And then working on that sleep. The sleep is that, that real linchpin for longevity. Yeah. I want to come back to the sleep and stress specifically, because, you know, we talk all, all the time about nutrition and exercise. So I, I think your time can be better suited to talk about some of these things. But before we jump into the sleep and the stress, in my mind, one of the things that, and perhaps, um, perhaps this is how some of our listeners feel, but when we think about cardiovascular disease, stroke and, and, and heart attacks, you know, oftentimes we think about people who are uh, grossly overweight, morbidly obese, um, experiencing very poor health as being the victims of these you know, this disease state, what do we actually see? And, you know, is that actually the case or is this affecting, you know, everyday Jane and Joe's that all of a sudden, you know, the ball drops and, and they have a episode. Correct. And that is a very good point is that, you know, you can look healthy on the outside and you can be very, very vascular sick on the inside. Um, you know, the, Example was Bob Harper, the guy from The right. Biggest Loser, very, very fit. He almost dropped out of a heart attack in the gym. And if it wasn't for the help of a medical student to resuscitate him, he probably wouldn't have made it. Well, after he woke up after getting his stint and was like, oh my gosh, I had a heart attack, they found out he had lipoprotein little a, which 20% of the population has. It increases your vascular risk by double. And so he didn't know his arteries were aging faster than he looked on the outside. So fitness is very important. And it may have been what actually saved his life that he was fit enough to survive mm. a heart attack, but it didn't prevent him from having one. And so it's the analogy test don't guess. You have to go looking just some, because somebody is obese does not mean necessarily that they're metabolically unhealthy on the inside. They may not have a lot of visceral fat and a lot of inflammation. They may have a lot of subcutaneous fat, which is, you know, cosmetically what they may not like, but it doesn't mean that their arteries are necessarily taking a, a 
know, ding from it. So you have to look at the up to 400 different risk factors that can actually injure the arteries. So some, some telltale ones are like, if your blood pressure is not 120 over 80, there's something going on with your vascular system, no matter if you're fit or not. You know, if you're a guy and you have erectile dysfunction, there's something going on with your vascular system. You need to go get that checked out. And it was a physician back in the 1600s that realized this. His name was Dr. Thomas Sintanum. The saying was, a man is as old as his arteries. And that is very true. A lot of the vascular testing we do will age somebody's arteries. I recently saw a gentleman who was in his 40s. His arteries were actually 80 years old. He had mm. a five alarm fire going on that he didn't know about. And now we're putting it out for him so that he can enjoy that pulse span and longevity. You know, half the time somebody has a heart attack, they had no idea they're at risk until one of these plaques ruptures. Yeah. So what I'm hearing here is that there's there's certainly this underlying genetic component, right? Up to 20% of people have this LP little a mm -hmm. that significantly contributes to heart disease. Whereas, you know, a gross percentage of the population, it, it, it certainly can be driven by lifestyle related factors, right? Lack of exercise, poor nutrition habits, poor sleep, no stress management or poor stress management, all of those things. Is that, is that fair? Very much so. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's how metabolically healthy are you is the key. Like just because you're obese, if you're not insulin resistant, there may be less risk for that individual. I love that. Um, that the fact that we're discussing this, because I think there's this, just this huge stigma in our in industry and culture in general is like, listen, if you have low levels of body fat, invariably you're like a spitting image of someone who's healthy, especially with social media. And we kind of look through and we see these, these you know, potential images for health of, of people, um, who are lean and strong. Uh, but clearly that's not the case. Right. And I think that's why it's so important for people to hear this and for them to not ignore the underlying signs and symptoms of, of really, really important risk factors for uh, death and, and disease states. So Let's talk about things that people can be doing. You mentioned obviously nutrition and exercise, but but predominantly sleep and stress management as the things that people should be focused on. And and again, is it's not common that you would be hearing a cardiovascular doctor talking about sleep at such an extensive level as I've heard you discuss. So let's dive into sleep. Um, and why it's so important and, and maybe one or two or three of the, the ways in which you would guide people to improving those circadian rhythms. Sure. So you know, for the people that are watching the video, like behind me on my wall in the office, it's a giant mitochondria. You know, it's all about, are your mitochondria healthy or not? If they're healthy, you're healthy. And your circadian biology has a large role. And if your mitochondria are going to be doing well, your mitochondria only repair themselves while you're sleeping. So if you don't sleep well, it's like having an engine that you've never done any preventive work on. You've never changed the spark plugs. You've never changed the oil. And then you're expecting to go to the gym and right. run it as fast as you can. And you're going to put in premium gas and go 200 miles an hour. You're not going to do that. So you have to sleep well to repair the mitochondria. And so that's why I talk about it so much at length with people. It's like, they'll come in and like, my cholesterol is high. And I want to talk about nutrition. It's like, we'll get there. They're important but they're literally like fifth or sixth down on the line. Like if you don't sleep well, start there, full stop. You know, if you have high blood pressure, you know, if you have the classic, you're snoring and you don't feel well the next day, you know, your spouse says, I think you're stopping breathing. You have to get assessed for sleep apnea. 
it's just such a risk factor that's modifiable that right. you know, and it's heavily underdiagnosed. This is also one where it's a little bit counterintuitive. Yes, if you're heavy, have a large neck, you're at higher risk that that posterior pharynx is going to collapse. But even if you're thin, you can have sleep apnea. You know, um, you know, if you've had oral work done, you've had teeth removed to get braces, you have a small oral pharynx. You know, your dentist can actually evaluate you and see what is your risk of having sleep apnea. If you have sleep apnea, that puts a lot of oxidative stress and causes inflammation in your system. You start basically aging faster from the inside mm -hmm. out with this inflammation. So sleep studies are almost ubiquitous in somebody who has vascular risk factors, or they come and say like, I don't feel like I'm sleeping well. Well, we got to make sure it's not an apnea that's causing that sleep to be so abnormal. Um, and the circadian biology, you know, that's why I'm wearing the blue blocking glasses. And that's why you saw me at that summit wearing them. It's that you know, I always want to tell my brain what time of day it is. I don't want the technology to tell my brain that it's always noontime. You have a blue light detector in your eye that's called the melanopsin receptor. It's sensing the color of the sky tells your body what time of day it is. And the sky changes different colors from sunrise to noon to when the sun's about to set. And when the sun sets, that blue light detector, no more blue photons of light hit it, the body gets signaled. Well, it must be nighttime soon. And your body starts preparing different hormones and neurotransmitters to go to sleep. But with the ubiquitous of our devices and artificial lights, yeah, yeah. we have light 24-7 if we want it, and our body gets confused. It thinks it's daytime, and you make different hormones and neurotransmitters during daytime versus nighttime. And if you don't get the right signals, your body doesn't get the signal, well, should be winding down and going to sleep. So if you're not sleeping seven and a half, eight hours a night and feeling well-rested, look at your light environment to see if you have that dialed in yet. So... Yeah, absolutely. We, and we've talked about sleep on this on this show uh, a fair amount before. So, what are some of the daily behaviors that people can implement? So, you you know, you're obviously wearing the blue light blocking glasses. I'm curious, do we, you know, do you wear those all of the time, or are you exposing your eyes to natural sunlight? You know, first thing in the morning, or so. Yeah, assume these are like indoor sunglasses. When yeah. you're outside, you want the full spectrum of light to be hitting your retina, and optimally. The first light that's going to hit your retina is going to be sunlight. So this is going to depend on where you're at in the world and your latitude and such, you know, when the sun is rising. But if you're up before sunrise, you should ideally protect your eyes, you know, with some type of lens or keep your house with dark, or you, know, you can be the biohacker and have the red lights on and stuff like that if you like. And then go outside when the sun breaks the horizon, you know, get that full spectrum light in your eyes. That sets the supercosmic nucleus, tells your body it's daytime. And then when you're inside, you want to try to have your light environment be as similar as possible to outside. So in my office here, I have red light bulbs, I have UVA light bulbs. I'm trying to make it like the wavelengths of light that are behind the glass because the glass filters out a lot of that wavelengths. When I'm in front of the screens, I have these lenses on. I usually wear the more yellowish ones during the daytime. They block up generally to 450 nanometers of light. And then in the evening time, my house is pretty tricked out. I have all the fancy biohacker red lights. So if I don't want to wear these things at night, I don't need to because my house is dark or it's red light. But if I'm going to watch TV or on a screen that doesn't have a protector, then I'll just throw on the lenses. I'm pretty sensitive, so I don't often need to wear the red lenses. But if I'm traveling or if like I got to make sure I'm embedded at a certain time, if you wear the lenses that are like the, the Terminator red ones that block yeah. up to like 550 right. nanometers, I'll be asleep in 20, 30 minutes if I throw those things on. Um, they just really tell the body it's midnight. Like there's no light getting to the back of the eye other than like red lights. The body's like, must be midnight at this point or something. Right. So your body goes to sleep. 
what what research have you done or what do you know about EMF exposure and it, the impact on mitochondrial health and, and maybe even the circadian rhythms? So we're always bombarded by EMFs. You, know, you want to be bombarded by nature's EMFs. So sunlight, on the human frequency of the earth. We don't necessarily want to be bombarded by Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, 5G. Right. The mitochondria are essentially radio antennas. They're sensing all these frequencies. And I sometimes use analogies like it's like a radar jammer to the mitochondria. They don't work well when they're in these high EMF environments. The electromagnetic frequencies open up the voltage-gated calcium channels. Calcium goes into the cell. That causes a cell danger response. It has an effect on nitric oxide availability, and it kicks up this inflammation. The mitochondria make less energy in this environment. So it is one of those cases where it's like, you cannot get away from all the EMFs in the world. Like you're not going to live in a Faraday cage and run around right. in a bubble all day long. But you do want to try to make your bedroom be as electrically silent as possible. So shut off your Wi-Fi routers, get the devices out of the bedroom. You know, if you have to be available by phone, put it as far as away from the room as possible, turn the ringer way up and you know, it rings, then get up and go get the phone. Um, and your room should be dark, quiet, and electrically silent as well. So you know, the better you can sleep, the better the mitochondria repair. And so, yeah, if you have your smart meter on the other side of the wall and the Wi-Fi routers in the basement, your mitochondria is sensing that EMF all night long, and that's causing inflammation in the mitochondria, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so important to acknowledge and so challenging uh, at the same time, because I think we're all of the realization, like, man, if if sleep really is the you know such a pivotal factor in our overall health and you know prevention of of disease states then these are seemingly simple yet potentially challenging aspects of of improving our health of you know getting rid of the wi-fi making sure our devices are away from our our heads at night and and so it's like again such a seemingly simple thing that we can be doing uh, to improve our health. And I'm glad that, you know, you're able to share that. Now, what about the, the stress management approach or a couple ways that you guide people to help manage their stressors? Sure. And that's what I tell people was like, you know, you're, you're never going to, you know, have a stress-free life. You know, that's not the purpose of living. It's, you know, it's stress the system and recover from the stressor. And so for the people that are more fitness oriented, that's what working out is doing. You're putting a lot of physical load on the body you sleep, you recover from that stressor, you assimilate, you get your gains, and you go and do it again. But if you don't sleep well, you will not see the gains that you're hoping for. The same thing is with mental stress. You know, it's mentally taxing to drive in traffic. But once you get out of the traffic, how fast can you wind that body back down? So the analogy is like you train your body in a gym or your home environment, but do you train your nervous system? Mm. You, know, you, you train your system to like be ramped up and stressed, but do you train your nervous system to recover? And this is where heart rate variability training can come in. You know, how do you train your vagal, you know, nerve, meditation, biofeedback, deep breathing exercises, yoga, prayer, vagal nerve stimulators. There's a lot of things that can be done to help cool down that stress response. So, you know, the way to kind of monitor it would be looking potentially at your heart rate variability. Um, I would caution that the majority of the watches and the bands that are saying they're tracking heart rate variability are actually 
checking something called the pulse. Uh, it's the PPG velocity, the pulse. Um, I'll remember the middle word in a second, but it's basically how fast the arteries are expanding and contracting. Mm -hmm. And they assimilate that to thinking that it's close to what the heart rate variability is between the pulses, but it's not actually measuring heart rate variability. To measure heart rate variability, you have to use a chest strap to be able to get the electrical signal directly off the heart. And the heart rate variability is inversely proportional to your heart rate. So heart rate variability is the instantaneous difference in milliseconds between heartbeats. And as you're breathing in and out and activating your diaphragm and the vagal nerve, your heart rate is going to be expanding and contracting. So your heart rate is not consistently 70 beats a minute. It's 70.2, 69.8. And your body's basically swinging back and forth. Your body wants to be able to respond to a stressor, run from the line as fast as you can and recover. But if you're like a metronome and always 70, the body is not very resilient. Mm -hmm. So heart rate variability is a metric somewhat of how stressed your body is. There are certain people, myself included, probably genetically have, quote, low heart rate variability. Mine's not a marker that I'm overtraining or that I'm sick. But in some people, that can be a marker for them. So whatever your heart rate variability is on these monitors, take it with a grain of salt. Sure. But if it's dropping significantly from your baseline, you might be getting sick, you might be overtraining, or you're not sleeping well enough for your body to recover. So just use this like a check engine light. Is there any, you know, any correlation to resting heart rate um, and ways that we can leverage kind of looking at resting heart rate on a daily basis to, to be indicative of, you know, whether it's just total heart health or, um, overt stressors or ways in which, you know, beyond the HRV that we should be looking at it. So your resting heart rate, you know, should, if you're going to be monitoring, probably would check it first thing in the morning before right. any stimulants, caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, anything's in your body. Um, and a bell-shaped curve is that, you know, the majority of heart rates are going to be between 60 and 100 beats per minute. Now, there are people that it's normal that the heart rate's less than 60, and it's normal for a couple of percent of people that it's a little bit higher than 100. But all things being equal, lower is better, less right. stress and strain on the heart. So if your resting heart rate is in the 50s and 60s, often it's a sign that you're better cardiorespiratory trained or fit. Now, the caveat is that, you know, you're not having thyroid dysfunction where your thyroid's underactive right. and your heart rate's slowing down. You know, you're not somebody who um, is on certain medications that are slowing the heart rate down. This is like unmedicated resting heart rates in the 50s and 60s. That's usually a good sign of longevity, um, you know, because the heart isn't having to work as hard to maintain cardiac output. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, makes a lot of sense. And we always work to uh, improve cardiovascular health of our clients, which invariably we see, you know, lower resting heart rates, which is usually a good sign that they're more physically fit mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. to say nothing else. Now, you, you talked about sleep, you talked about circadian rhythms. Let's talk a little bit about nutrition and how that affects our circadian rhythms and invariably how that affects, you know, how our nutrition, how our digestion specifically, how our meal timing specifically affect um, these cardiovascular risks, how they affect arterial health uh, and, and whatnot. So it's a, it's a complicated topic, let's say. So, and it's not a one size fit all strategy. 
So it's really going to go back to this mitochondria behind me. The mitochondria are the engines. You inherit these engines from your mother. She gets it from her mom. So the healthier your mom, the healthier her mom is, the better you're going to tend to do. If you do 23andMe, you can see the maternal haplotype on your 23andMe report. It gives you an idea of where your original maternal lineage comes from. So think again about your mitochondria being the engines. Food is energy and information for the engines. So we're not talking about factory food, whole foods. It's tied to the photosynthesis system. So sunlight hits the earth. Carbon is created in the plants. You go eat the plant and you digest basically photosynthesis in reverse. The mitochondria make energy out of that photosynthetic material. Or you're eating the animal that ate the plant. So that energy and information should be yoked up to the environment that that food grew in. So before the advent of transportation from food all over the world, you would have eaten seasonally. You would have only right. eaten things that you could have gotten outside your home. So depending on if you're in a location that has four seasons, your diet would have changed throughout the seasons. You know, if there's winter where you're at, there's not carbohydrates probably growing in your environment that year at the time of year. So you wouldn't have eaten them. Maybe you can some of them, but you wouldn't have had unlimited amounts of carbohydrates in the wintertime. So you would have been naturally more keto carnivore in the wintertime. Mm. And then when the fruits and vegetables grow back in the spring and summer, you would eat them again. This is where basically the mitochondria come back into the story. When you eat foods that are high in carbohydrates, that was grown in a summer environment. That summer is now going into your body. Your skin and eyes are outside sensing that same sunlight. Those match up. The body's like, must be summertime. And you run different programs in your mitochondria mm -hmm. in the summertime. If you eat summer foods and it's dark outside and cold outside, and your body's like, it is winter outside. How did I get this banana in my stomach? That causes a mismatch of information, which can lead to inflammation in the body. So ideally, people would eat during daylight hours so the body knows that it's daytime. They would try to eat seasonal to what grows in their environment. How do you best do that? You go to farmer's markers and ask the guys what's growing. Now, that's probably the easiest way. There's no direct website you can go to and like, what's seasonal for my environment? Maybe you can find some stuff for certain cities, but we have to go out there and ask the farmers, what are you growing right now? Mm -hmm. And then thinking about food is just energy and information for the mitochondria. The mitochondria is not eating carbohydrates and fats. The mitochondria break those things down into electrons. And then you funnel those electrons to the mitochondria to make ATP, water, carbon dioxide, and heat. You're not eating carbs and fats. You're eating to get those electrons for the mitochondria. That's why I say it's not one size fits all. And nutrition is more complicated than paleo is good, carnivore is good. It depends. Well, absolutely. I love the explanation. So um, it's, it's obviously so multifactorial, but just the emphasis on our lifestyle factors on on paying attention to what we're eating eating seasonally eating within daylight hours managing sleep you know optimizing digestion so speaking of animals what is your uh observations been um around sort of the the approach to keto to more carnivore based diets from a cardiovascular health standpoint I see many of the patients that are, you know, experimenting with keto diets or carnivore lifestyles. And 
I usually ask the question, like, is this a, a nutritional strategy that they're trying to do for a lifetime? Or is this like they're trying to get over, you know, some gut health issue or right. a weight management issue? Because it's a little bit different. Often these diets are somewhat elimination diets by choice. And the people tend to feel better when they get rid of the things that they're sensitive to. But is it a diet they could do forever? Could they do it when they're 80? But the answer is no. It's probably not a great lifestyle forever. So I look at it as, you know, what is their goal with the diet? Then from a vascular standpoint, I get a lot of patients come in with, quote, high cholesterol. Well, I'm going to do the advanced lipoprotein testing and tell them, well, is it likely their nutritional strategy that's driving it? And not everybody, but certain people, a high saturated fat diet will upregulate cholesterol production in the liver. So they're going to have to make more lipoproteins to ferry the cholesterol around. And then the high saturated fat also dials back the LDL receptor being expressed. The LDL receptor sits on the outside of the liver and grabs these things as they go by. So it's kind of a double whammy. You're making more of them and you don't have any off ramps for them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen to everybody, but you can kind of tell who's more likely to have this happen is if you look at their cholesterol balance tests and their hyperabsorber of sterols, more likely to happen to them. Or if they're an APOE4 carrier, if they're an APOE4 right. carrier, that carnivore diet with high saturated fat may not work for that individual. And so I've seen people who have lipid panels that look like familial hyperlipidemia. Their LDL cholesterol is 250, their APOB is nearly 200. And there's this myth that like if your HDL cholesterol and triglycerides, this ratio is near one and they're not insulin resistant, it doesn't matter. But that is a myth. High ApoBs by itself without insulin resistance can penetrate the endothelial wall, contribute to plaque formation. So if the person is not willing to change their diet, then you have to talk about what options are they willing to take to modulate the ApoB lipoproteins. Often they wind up on pharmaceutical agents to modulate that if they're not able to change up their diet at that stage. Yeah. And to be fair, I think that the vast majority of people, at least in my experience or in conversations, are going down this approach to improve their health. So if it becomes obvious that it's doing just the opposite, it would be logical that they'd be more than willing to. Yeah. to so you'd, be, uh, you'd be surprised. There's well, a lot of people who are like, you know, they're very dogmatic on the nutrition. And so yeah, I just kind of laid out there, like, I'm not here to judge you. It's like, I just show you like, this is what your body is sensing doing this environment. Yeah, no, and nothing surprises me anymore. I guess on the other side of the coin is, I, I suppose you'd probably have the exact same conversation with someone who's plant-based or vegan around, right? The role, you know, we, we understand the role of protein. We understand the role of lean muscle mass um, and, and the genetic factors involved, right? Correct. I mean, and that's, definitely a complicated discussion with some people is that, you know, if you're an ethical vegan, I'm not going to try to talk you out of that. Right. But you have to understand that that diet is probably not set up for longevity. It's not an optimal diet for somebody in their 70s, 80s, 90s. If you're 20, 30 years old, you may be able to do it and not have any you know, effects. But it really does come down in large part to how healthy your skeletal muscle is as you age. And that's where the protein loads really, you know, can suffer on a plant-based diet. Yeah, you can do it, but it takes a lot more planning to get plant-based sources of protein in. And the thresholds, you know, plant proteins are less bioavailable. So you generally have to eat more volumes of foods to be able to get that same threshold. And what is the threshold? Often it's at least 90 grams of high quality protein per day. Mm -hmm. So plant-based, you might need 130, 140. And that's just to maintain what you got. If you're right. trying to put on muscle mass, you're, you're probably nearly wanting one gram per pound of ideal body weight. 
one gram per pound of ideal body weight of protein, right? And so obviously you are uh, of the opinion that eating uh, for what most people would be a lot more protein is not a, a risk factor for, you know, cardiovascular issues. Well, the majority of people know but some people, if they go down the route of doing the protein with all ribeyes and they're sensitive sure. to saturated fat, that can be the issue. It's the saturated fat. It's not the protein. And have you seen, is there a difference between the quality of the protein? So do we see, and I don't want to go too far down the rabbit okay. hole, but I do think this is really important, right? Because the, the conventional wisdom is like, well, I shouldn't eat too much protein uh, for, for a number of reasons, but particularly uh, because of heart health. And obviously I'm hearing you around, no, it's, it's a saturated fat that's problematic for a percentage of the population. But what about the quality of the protein? If we're talking about maybe the fatty acid profile of the animal protein. Sure. And it goes back to kind of the photosynthesis, you know, portion is that, you know, you are what, you know, your animal ate. So, you know, you want the animal to be eating what it normally would eat. You know, you don't want beef that's eating a bunch of corn. It's not evolutionary. What cows would have been doing. So you wanted to be eating grass for the most part. So yes, the, the quality of the protein source is important. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. I just, I thought it, it, I think it's so important for our audience to, to hear that, to understand it for you as a, you know, cardiovascular expert, um, to acknowledge that that is a appropriate amount of protein for someone to be consuming for the importance of strength training and lean muscle mass for like the mitochondria and all of these other factors uh, at improving health. Um, so as we start to wrap this up, what are, or are there any kind of new innovations in cardiology, things that we should be keeping our eye on as consumers and health proponents that are promising towards the future of heart health? So I would probably go with two things. One is Thinking about the endothelial glycocalyx, the glycocalyx is the protective gel coat that lines the 60,000 miles of blood vessels. If you think of taking a fish out of water and your slime on the fish, that's essentially the glycocalyx of the fish. Your arteries are lined with something very similar. When that coating gets damaged, that's the first step that something's going to go wrong with your vascular system. And there's new tests that are coming out routinely that are going to be able to assess the effects of the endothelium and the glycocalyx. So hopefully at some point we're going to have, you know, wearables that can say, oh, your glycocalyx is not working well today. You need to eat more, you know, things that support the glycocalyx, or you need to cut back on certain things that are oxidizing your glycocalyx. So I think that'll be in our lifetimes. But for the time being, you really want to look at how much damage is their arteries right now. And so for most guys over the age of 40, and this would include women as well, the number one test to first consider would be a CT coronary calcium scan. It is not a perfect test, but is better than traditional stress test and just waiting for people to have symptoms. A CT coronary calcium scan is a low-dose radiation scan that looks for calcifications in your coronary arteries, which are the blood vessels that provide the nutrients to the heart muscle. Calcium is supposed to be in your bones and in your teeth, not supposed to be in your arteries. So if you have calcium in your arteries, it means you have plaque in your arteries. The more calcium you have in your arteries, the more plaque you have in your arteries. So calcium scores should be zero, but often after they do 40, six out of 10 people, it won't be. The higher the calcium score, the more risk. So if the score is over 400, that is considered high risk. Over 1,000 is very high risk. 
And I've seen patients with scores greater than 7,000 before. And they had no idea that it was going to be mm. such high risk. So that is a good test, but it misses the salt plaque. It's not designed to be able to see the salt plaque that's building up. And often it's the salt plaque that's rupturing and causing the heart attacks, not the hard plaque. Got it. Yeah. So hard plaque is like a rock or calcified plaque. Yep. The soft plaque is more like a pimple that's ready to pop. So there is a test with a CT coronary angiogram that will use AI technology to then interpret the images to quantify the degree of soft plaque. And that test is known as the clearly scan. So the clearly scan can tell you, do you have hard plaque, soft plaque, or soft plaque that's more inflamed? And it's that soft plaque and that soft plaque that's more inflamed that needs to be more aggressively managed and treated. Got it. Got it. That's super helpful. Thank you. And uh, just, you know, lastly is what advice do you have for individuals regarding kind of their regular health checkups um, and when it would be appropriate for them to consult a cardiologist? So the recommendation would be that, you know, if you're over the age of 40, it's time to get started to looking at your vascular health if you haven't already. That calcium score test I just mentioned, that's a good starting point. If you're in your 40s, it's very likely to be zero. That's what you want it to be. But you want to look at some other risk factors. So look at your ApoB, your lipoprotein A, look at your markers of insulin resistance. Those are kind of the big ones. Is your blood pressure less than 120 over 80? Right. If it's not, look into the reasons why your blood pressure is not controlled. And then we talked a lot about sleep. If there's any issues with your sleep, consider getting a sleep study to get to the root cause of why you're not sleeping as well as you can. You mentioned ApoE4 genetic factor. So could you justify getting a genetic test to look specifically for that? And would there be anything else that you would look at? So the three big kind of vascular ones I would consider checking is your ApoE is an echo, ApoE genotype. You know, if you're an ApoE4 carrier, increased risk of Alzheimer's, diabetes, you know, higher cholesterol, um, because it mostly affects the LDL receptors. Um, but I do want to caution, like ApoE4 does not equal you will get Alzheimer's. If you go on the Google machine, you're going to freak yourself out. Right. It's associated with it. Basically, don't become insulin resistant. Keep your inflammation under control and limit your vascular risk factors. You won't go on to progress to Alzheimer's. The second gene would check would be 9P21. This is known as the heart attack gene because it can double your risk of vascular disease. It mostly affects the arteries by inflaming them and can have some effect on the endothelial health. So your arteries can be stiffer with this gene activated. And then we talked about lipoprotein A. It's genetically determined. Uh, so those three are kind of the ones that can kind of put people in higher risk buckets than they would have normally known about. Amazing. Yeah, I really appreciate that. You do a really great job of, of breaking the, all of this seemingly complex stuff down into uh, easily understood components. So thank you for that for, for my behalf, as well as <laughs> on behalf of our listeners, Dr. Twyman, where is, I know you've got so many great resources out there and you're, you're active on social media. So where's the best place for people to kind of, if they want to continue to learn more as I hope they would, where can they start to follow you? So on social media, I'm not super active, but I'm on Instagram every Monday night, uh, at 6 PM central time. I do an ask me anything. So you know, people can submit questions ahead of time or ask them in the comments. And I'll usually stay on for at least half an hour or more to answer some of these questions like you were asking today. Uh, on Instagram, I'm just at Dr. Twyman. Uh, my website, drtwyman.com has some other resources, links to prior podcasts I've been on, uh, some of the product recommendations, you know, 
we didn't talk too much about red light therapy today, but if you're interested in that, I have a site that talks about red light therapy. And then uh, if patients are interested in working with me on one-on-one, um, I still am for the time being taking on patients one-on-one. It's getting closer and closer to where that window will close. Um, as people get the message out that, you know, there's ways to test your arteries. People are coming in from as far as ways, Hawaii, the Bahamas, Canada to come see us in St. Louis. I believe it. So my practice is in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, yeah, we have patients come in, see us for the first visit so that we can do all the non-invasive testing, get the appropriate labs, and then any follow-up visits can be done via telemedicine. But if patients are interested in that type of, uh, you know, working with us, my website, drtwyman.com has an application. And one of the ladies on my team would reach out to you and kind of answer your questions and make sure that, you know, what we offer would work for you then. Amazing. And in the meantime, you've given just a tremendous amount of useful information for people to start to implement right away to start to improve their health around sleep and stress management and, and nutrition. And, um, and then as well as just kind of what basic labs we can start running right away. And I think a, a, a really helpful and different perspective for people to start to think about these things and not just, you know, using their conventional labs and giving themselves the check of approval to say, just because your numbers are normal doesn't mean that you have a clean bill of health. And we need to be, if nothing else, it's like, we need to be proactive about this, right? We need to dig in and really take responsibility and ownership over our health and, and learn from people like you on the things that we can and should be doing, because the last thing that we want, in my opinion, is to be normal, right? In this day and age, in our society, with the level of disease that we have present. And so we've got to be proactive about this, just like you have, and just like you're teaching people. And look, I'm trying to teach people too. So thank you, sir, very much for your time, energy, wisdom, knowledge. I, I really appreciate it. You're very, very welcome. And thank you again for the opportunity. It was a, you know, a great conversation. I'm glad people are going to learn more to how to take their cardiovascular health into their own hands. I appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here are four ways I can help you in your nutrition journey for free. One, grab a free copy of my Fat Loss Fix Guide at fatlossfixguide.com. Two, Join my free group at smartnutritionmadesimple.com. Three, subscribe to my YouTube channel at smartnutritionmadesimpletv.com. Four, leave a five-star rating and positive review so that we can gain access to more nutrition experts ready to share their knowledge with you and ultimately help more people make smart nutrition simple.